If these wavering believers are going to have any confidence of cleansing from sin, they need to be convinced that He alone brings true cleansing. And if you and I are going to have confidence of cleansing of our sin, we too need to be convinced that He alone has power to make us clean. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, one of the critiques or criticisms sometimes we hear leveled against Christianity is that it is such an exclusive belief system, like Jesus is the only way to God. And I hear you saying here that Jesus is the only way for us to have our sin removed, to, to be forgiven and to be right. How, how can you hold to such an exclusive claim? It's a great question, Steve, and to answer it, we need to dig into what the Bible teaches us about God's plan for the removal of sin, for the cleansing of sin, for all who will trust in his Savior. The Old Testament sets out an expectation of a Savior to come, and a particular kind of Savior who will deal with sin in accordance with God's plan and his stated will. And what the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 that we're going to be looking at today teaches us is that Jesus came in accordance with the plan of God to remove sin in a way that will be acceptable and pleasing to God the Father. And he's the only one who could do it. And the salvation he offers is the only salvation that's available. Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9 together then. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 28 as we begin this message, Sin Cleansed. Here is Jonathan. One of the most famous scenes in English theater is the sleepwalking scene from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Perhaps you remember it and know it. Here, a deeply troubled Lady Macbeth confronts the reality of her guilt for her part in King Duncan's murder. She's obsessed with the idea that her hands are covered in blood and she's unable to remove the stain of blood from her hands. And as Lady Macbeth continues in her disturbed state, we see her doctor standing at the side of the stage. He comments as he looks on that her heart is carrying a heavy weight and he concludes that the cure for her problem lies well beyond his medical skill. It is a captivating and a famous scene. I think I've managed to forget almost all the Shakespeare I read or ever saw at school. But that particular scene is kind of stuck in my mind. And I think the scene is so enduringly powerful because it strikes a certain chord with us. It strikes a chord not because we're murderers with blood on our hands, but because it visualizes a reality that we all know very well the reality of carrying a burden of guilt, of feeling stained by guilt, and of longing to be clean. I wonder if you know that longing this morning, and I wonder if it's familiar to you. The letter to the Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish believers who are wavering in their commitment to Jesus Christ. They once turned to Christ in repentance and faith, but they're beginning to wonder if they've made the right decision, if they made the right call. In particular, they're questioning whether Jesus really is able to make them clean. 
Some of their old friends are telling them, it seems, that cleansing from sin is, is only available at the temple. If they won't return, if they won't come back to temple worship, if they won't approach God through the priests and the sacrifices that He's outlined in His Word, well, they are in real spiritual danger. Apart from the temple system, apart from the sacrificial system at the temple, how can they hope to be made clean before a holy God? How can they presume to have acceptance before him? That seems to be the nature of the situation, the crisis that prompted the writing of this particular letter. And so the writer's purpose in our particular passage this morning in chapter 9 is to convince these wavering believers that Jesus is the only one who has the power to make sinners clean. He alone has the power to cleanse them and to cleanse us of sin. Now, to convince these wavering believers to trust wholly in Jesus and to, uh, to make them clean— the writer needs to show them that the Old Covenant system was never in and of itself God's remedy for sin. It only served to point forward to the coming work of Christ. But now in Jesus, well, we've got the true reality, the ultimate reality toward which all the symbols pointed. And he wants to show them, and he wants to show us that we would be fools to turn away from him. Here in chapter 9, the writer is in the midst of a large-scale comparison of the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Old Covenant priests. We're not going to try and unpack all the details of that comparison, but we want to see the heart of the argument. And in verses 11 to 14, the heart of the argument is this. Jesus can bring true cleansing because he ministers in the true sanctuary and brings the true sacrifice. Jesus brings true cleansing because he ministers in the true sanctuary and offers the true sacrifice. If these wavering believers are going to have any confidence of cleansing from sin, and if they're going to stick with Jesus for the long run, they need to be convinced that he alone brings true cleansing. And if you and I this morning are going to have confidence of cleansing of our sin today, and if we are going to stick with Jesus for the long run, we too need to be convinced that he alone has power to make us clean. Jesus brings true cleansing, first of all, because he serves in the true sanctuary. When I was a university student, one of the summer jobs I had was working for a litigation lawyer uh, down in Toronto. I used to do quite a range of different things for this lawyer in his office, but quite often I would be sent out on the road to serve legal papers to a company that one of his uh, clients was in a kind of wrangle with. And one principle I learned right away was that in dealing with big companies, it was always most efficient to go straight to head office. If the company had lots of little branches and offices around the place, you could theoretically deliver the papers to any branch and that would be legal. But the people at the local branch, they wouldn't have power to do anything with those papers. All they would do is send them up to head office and it would kind of delay the process. You weren't ultimately going to achieve anything at the local branch. And of course, we all know that if you want to get something done, you've got to go straight to the top. You've got to go to head office. One of the key lessons that the writer wants to drive home for the Hebrews here is the lesson that the temple in Jerusalem and its predecessor, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the earthly structure was never the true home 
and the ultimate dwelling of God. In his kindness, God had met with his people through the temple system, and he had descended to engage with them there through the priests. But his true home, of course, is heaven above. And the earthly sanctuary is only a kind of shadowy picture and illustration of that heavenly reality. It is a kind of outpost, but it is not head office. It is not the place where actually divine business is transacted. So back in chapter 8 and verse 5 over the page, the writer says that the priests at the temple serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. That's why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, because you're making a copy, an illustration, not the real thing. But now Jesus has come as the true and ultimate priest, and his ministry takes place not in an earthly sanctuary, which is just a copy and a shadow of the real thing. No, Jesus's priestly ministry takes place now in the heart of heaven itself, in the true presence of God. And because of that, because of the location in which his ministry takes place, that ministry is effective in a way that the ministry of the earthly priests never was. Back to our passage, verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. The Old Testament promised a day when God would bring true and ultimate cleansing to his people and do away with their sin once for all. The promise is repeated in lots of places in lots of different ways throughout the Old Testament. For example, Jeremiah 33 and verse 6, I will cleanse them from all the sin they've committed against me, and I will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Ezekiel 36 and verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. A day was coming, the Old Testament promised, when the Lord would really deal with the problem of his people's impurity, and he would really make them clean. It was going to take no ordinary priest and no ordinary sacrifice to achieve that, but the Lord said, yes, the day will come. And here in verse 11, we're told that Jesus came as high priest of the good things that are already here. He came as high priest of the promised things that have now arrived, even cleansing from sin. Ministry in the earthly sanctuary could never achieve ultimate and eternal results because it took place in a context that was provisional, pictorial, and ultimately of lesser significance. God's true home, well, it is heaven above. But Jesus, as our great high priest, well, he ministers above. He has access, if you like, to head office. And he serves in the heavenly sanctuary itself. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Sin Cleansed. It's part of our series called The Heart of Easter. And today we're taking a look at Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 28. We're pausing here, but we'll get back to this message in just a moment. 
Well, Encounter the Truth produces a weekly devotional. It's available through our website, and we'd love for you to check these out. If you've not connected with these and seen Jonathan's writing, I encourage you to visit our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Look for Moment of Truth, and you're going to find weekly encouragement there. Again, our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. And when you stop by the website, I want to ask you to consider a gift of any amount this month. As you give a gift to support, we want to say thank you by sending you not one, but two copies of Jonathan's book, The King, the Cross, and the Meaning of Easter. It's our way of saying thank you for giving and supporting this ministry. Now, I did mention two copies of the book. One is for you, one to give away to a friend or a family member who could really benefit from reading this book that has a clear presentation of the gospel. Definitely an evangelistic book, and we'd love to send you two copies. Again, one for you, one to give away. You can find out more or give online by coming to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884, or again, EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here's Jonathan. Jesus brings true cleansing because he ministers in the true sanctuary. Secondly, Jesus brings true cleansing because he offers the true sacrifice. Verse 12, notice with me again. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean." How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? It seems pretty likely that the Hebrews were being told by some of their old friends that if they didn't come back to the temple, if they didn't participate in the sacrificial system there, then they couldn't have hope of the forgiveness of sin. God had ordained that system, and they were playing a very risky game by not taking part. But the writer wants to show and convince these wavering believers that those animal sacrifices offered year after year at the temple, they never had the power to cleanse them from sin. He makes that negative point very bluntly over at the start of chapter 10, chapter 10 and verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's always frustrating to have to repeat the same repair job time and time again. I feel quite sorry for the folk who work on the roads, maintaining the roads here in Ottawa at this time of year. I've never before lived in a place where the roads take such a beating over the winter, the freezing and the thawing and the snow plows. It is just brutal on the roads. There's one section in particular down our street, just a little way from our house, 
that has been particularly rough this winter. A really big pothole opened up. The city were efficient. They came and patched it pretty quickly. But within literally about two weeks, the thing had opened up again and got even worse to the point that when you came to that bit of the road, you had to kind of cross over to the left side and do this huge loop around so you didn't get stuck in this almighty chasm. Well, sure enough, the city were out again on Friday patching the thing up and they did a nice job. And hopefully that'll last for a little while. I don't know what the permanent solution is to the roads in this city. Maybe there isn't one, given our climate. But when you have to come back to the same job again and again and again, you know for certain that you haven't found a real solution. You're just patching at very best. Although the ancient Israelites might have assumed and might have believed that the animal sacrifices at the temple were God's final solution to sin, his true means of cleansing, the writer makes an obvious point. Those sacrifices cannot have been all that final and all that effective, ultimately, if they had to be repeated over and over and over again. Whatever good they achieved, it was only temporary at best. And actually, when you think about those sacrifices and the experience of going up to the temple in Jerusalem from the perspective of the ancient Israelites, surely the main result for them of participating in that whole system and that whole ritual was to be reminded year after year after year that they were still sinners, that they were still defiled by sin, and that ultimate cleansing had not yet been provided. That's what the writer says in chapter 10 and verse 3, and he puts the issue bluntly there in verse 4. Here's the bottom line, says the writer. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those sacrifices were never going to get the job done. The Old Testament placed a great deal of importance on the idea of the purity of the people of God. They needed to be ceremonially pure, ceremonially clean to participate in the life of the community and in the worship of God at the temple. A wide variety of things were impure according to Old Testament law, certain types of food, certain types of activity, certain types of disease. And if you came into contact with unclean things, there were certain steps you needed to undertake to be made clean again so that you might participate fully once more in the life of the community and in the worship at the temple. When we move from the Old Testament system to the New Testament time, we find that Jesus and the apostles set aside all those purity regulations and teach us that they no longer need to be kept. All foods are now declared clean and so on. And the fact that these purity regulations can be set aside tells us something very significant about them. It tells us that the whole concept of certain things and activities and diseases and people being fundamentally unclean, the whole concept of those things being unclean, well, it is not an objective and permanent reality. It's not that these things are actually fundamentally unclean or damaging in and of themselves. I mean, some diseases, I guess, are damaging in and of themselves. But the whole purity system in the Old Testament was serving a symbolic purpose. And that purpose is now fulfilled since Jesus has come. The whole purity legislation and the sacrifices and the offerings that brought cleansing, they functioned as a symbol and as a visual aid they were here to teach the people of God a vital and fundamental 
lesson. And here is the lesson. God is a God of total purity. We are defiled by our sin, and it is no small or easy thing for an impure people to come into the presence of a holy God. That's the lesson that the whole system taught. The purity laws of the Old Testament functioned a little bit like the metal detectors at the airport. See if you can follow me with this one. You know how it is when you go through one of those things, they tell you to put everything that's in your pockets into the little plastic bin and then you can walk through, just make sure you're not carrying any metal when you go. And you think to yourself, I'm not carrying any metal. I don't carry metal, that's not something I do. I'm clean, I'm fine. And you walk through and sure enough, the thing flashes bright red. And you're sent back to check your pockets and you've got 300 people in the line behind you all waiting for a flight, all watching now what you're doing. You go back and you check your pockets, and sure enough, there's a quarter in there, so you throw that over into the train, you walk through again, and sure enough, the light goes red. And uh, this time, it's your, it's your belt buckle, and by now, all the other lines are watching too, and you're getting a little bit embarrassed. And you go through again, and sure enough, the light goes off. You end up having a full body scan and a pat down, and it's all pretty embarrassing. Maybe that's just me. But it tells you something. You're carrying more than you thought you were. The purity laws of the Old Testament were designed to highlight to the people that they were more impure than they ever imagined, more unfit for the presence of God than they could have ever thought. The symbolism of the Old Testament system highlighted a true problem. It highlighted the defilement of heart of a sinful people. But in and of itself, the purity system, the ceremonial system, it only dealt with externals defiled hands and so on. It only dealt with externals, and so the cleansing system it offered, the means of cleansing it provided, only dealt with externals as well. And because these sacrifices were only symbolic in value, the very idea that they could provide actual cleansing from sin, well, it was a dangerous fiction. You may remember that there was a great furor a few years ago in South Africa when at the very height of the AIDS crisis, a leading politician suggested that HIV infection could be combated by taking a good shower after exposure to the virus. It's a ridiculous notion, of course, and incredibly dangerous to popularize. And the writer to the Hebrews is very concerned here that the Hebrews might abandon the true means of cleansing, the true means of internal cleansing, the blood of Christ, and return instead to a merely symbolic system. Now, that's the writer's concern. But what is it about the sacrifice of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, that makes that sacrifice effective in a way that the animal sacrifices at the temple never were? Well, we're going to have to pause right here, but we'll answer that question on the next broadcast. Hope you make it a point to tune in. By the way, if you ever miss a program, you can come and listen online. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. We depend on your generosity to keep this program on this station. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book Jonathan wrote, The King, the Cross, and the Meaning of Easter. And Jonathan, why did you write this book? 
Well, Steve, I, I wrote this book because I wanted to be able to give an opportunity to readers to go a little bit deeper with the meaning of Easter and the message of Easter for those who are uh, followers of Jesus. You know, coming into this season, it the story can be so familiar, and the familiarity can blunt its impact in our mind and on our heart. And in this very brief book, we dig into the story in particular of the trial before Pilate and look at what we're being taught about Jesus and his his power and his control within the situation and how, although Jesus is on trial, he is shown to be the true king. And I, I trust that's going to be a real encouragement for believers grappling afresh with the meaning of Easter and also for those who are still exploring and want to find out more what is the true meaning of of this annual uh, holiday and 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 celebration what does it really mean and to that end actually Steve I want to mention we're actually going to send two copies of the book to those who who request it we we want to send one for for you to keep and one for you to give away and we hope that you'll be able to to share this resource and the message of Easter with others well the book is called the King, the Cross, and the Meaning of Easter. And as you just heard, we'd love to send you two copies as you give a gift of any amount, one to give, one to keep. And you can find out more or give right now by coming to our website. It is EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884. Or again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.